0: Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. day, everyone, welcome to another Footyology Podcast summer edition on this uh, public holiday Monday. And uh, I say a very good morning, as per every week, to my co-host Mark Fine. How are you, Finey? Good morning. Yes, it is a public holiday, which
1: I don't know if that sits well with me, that we take the public holiday the day of ...after Australia Day and of course there is now a healthy debate around the date of Australia Day.
0: Yes, and I will be touching on that uh, a little bit later on in Life Hacks. Um, also, we awake to some shocking news about uh, a sporting great um, sadly taken from us.
1: Incredible. Exactly right. We, I awoke this morning to news feeds on my phone... Informing the world of the passing of Kobe Bryant Who has passed away in a helicopter crash His own helicopter With his daughter a, Another parent And a teammate of his daughter's basketball team And the pilot
0: 41 years old Yeah, 40, um, 41 years of age Retired at the end of uh, 2016 I mean, look we Let's say up front here Neither you nor I are huge basketball fans no. But we appreciate that a heap of people, particularly younger people in this country, are so. It, it's. Uh, I, I guess I've been trying to get a handle on um, just where he sits in the pantheon of basketball greatness, but clearly, if pretty you, high. If you name, if you asked
1: layman and non-basketball enthusiasts to name five the five greatest basketballers of all time, Jordan, LeBron, Kobe, Bryant. They're the names probably that roll off the tongue in the immediate past.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking in a sort of previous generation, perhaps Shaquille O'Neal. Shaq, Wilt Chamberlain, yeah.
1: et cetera. But he is, sadly was, in the pantheon of greatness, no question. When you have a look at a record, five times NBA champ, two times Olympic champion, 18 time NBA All-Star, fourth, uh, four times NBA All-Star Um, Game MVP, he was the MVP only once in his career of the entire season, the equivalent of football's Brownlow medal in 2008. Third all-time on the point scoring list until yesterday, when LeBron James took that title off him.
0: In fact, just mentioning Shaquille O'Neal is a bit of a... uh, uh... Changing of the baton, if you like, because he played the early few seasons of his career with Shaq and I think won uh, three consecutive championships with him early in his career. Um, went on to greater heights after O'Neill, I think, uh, when did he finish? About 2004. Uh, famously scored 81 points in a game against the Toronto Raptors in 2006, second and six. Second. Highest single-game total in NBA history.
1: Amazingly, he was a one-team player.
0: Yeah. Played for the LA
1: Lakers for 20 seasons after being drafted by the Charlotte Hornets.
0: But, uh, you know, just one of the... Regardless of your interest in the sport or not, uh, like you say, a household name. And it's always quite shocking when you hear of the passing of someone of that stature, and particularly in such tragic circumstances. So, um... Our condolences to anyone uh, who is a basketball fan and, of course, um, his uh, family and people over there in the US who will be quite devastated by the news. Um, We've got a couple of sponsors to thank, Finding, Yeah, we do indeed. The wonderful Andrews Hamburgers, 144
1: Bridport Street in Albert Park. I was there last week, or this week, not last week. Uh, Gee, go there on a Wednesday... And I'm not joking, a queue out the door. It's On a Wednesday. Iconic. It's just iconic. Fantastic burgers. And quite interesting. I was uh, sort of queuing up, and the person in front of me, just a a seemingly normal woman I realised, had sidearms holstering a large pistol, and the person behind me holstering a large pistol.
0: Hopefully they were police.
1: Well, I'm pretty sure they were, because one of the (laughs) tables, one of the sort of outdoor seating arrangements that was outside... Uh, was home to a lot of people holstering sidearms, and clearly members of uh, the police force uh, in plain clothes. I wonder why they do have their guns on display if they're sort under- of
0: gives away a bit. Doesn't well, if it if they're undercover, that wouldn't help. But nevertheless, not in the US.
1: <laughs> nevertheless, what is plainly clear is members of the Victorian police force, like. The rest of us are big fans of Andrew's Hamburgers.
0: So Wednesday's the the day, uh, henceforth known uh, not as Hump Day but as Burger Day. Yep. Uh, get down to Andrew's Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. And, of course, our other great sponsor. Nick Spartel and Hardwick Buildco. Now,
1: I know Nick is a great fan of the Andrew's Hamburger because he lives in the area. But I tell you what. There'll be a few people down at Andrew's Hamburgers with big smiles on their faces because of rebuilds and renovations, thanks to that great building company. Spoke to Nick Spartels yesterday, and I'll be catching up with him during the week, maybe at Andrew's Hamburgers. Good on you, Nick. If you're after a rebuild or a brand new house, certainly in the inner city area, and you live around Albert Park, South Melbourne, Port Melbourne, Middle Park, these burgeoning suburbs, these wonderful places for investment and also capitalisation on your property then they're the team to speak to.
0: And we do speak to uh, some of the all-star clients of, of Nick Spartel's. Dyson Heppel is one of them. You see the freshly shorn yeah. Dyson Heppel. For all
1: the right reasons,
0: yeah. for the bushfire appeal. But it's a good look. I, I, I like him uh, Son's dreadlocks, I think.
1: Yeah, it might be, might be the streamlining and aerodynamic haircut to propel him really into where I think he belongs, which is the very top bracket of midfielders in the AFL.
0: All right, lot to get through today. Let's get straight into it. On Footyology News Feed. Rightio, well, uh, still a fair way away from the football season, of course, although AFLW kicking off uh, sooner than later. And um, from a men's perspective, a uh, bit of injury news around over the last few weeks, but... Uh, couple of fairly significant ones. What's caught your eye on the injury front?
1: Buddy Franklin, probably front and centre, is going to be touch and go for the start of the season. In fact, the latest report is after a a bit of a a knee scrape that he'll miss the first round of the season, but hopefully that'll be it. So Mm. it's a rush to be ready for the start.
0: Yeah, you're just starting to wonder about the durability now. He's, what, 32, only played the 10 games last year. Um and they are still very reliant upon Buddy so uh, some I mean, I guess the upside is he's always been very durable hasn't he he's been a guy who hasn't necessarily needed the
1: big preseason
0: uh, yeah or a whole lot of recuperation time and I think the last couple of years you know from all reports he hasn't even got on the track that much so uh, fingers crossed for the Swans because obviously a huge part of the equation for them
1: one of the big challenges this year is certainly going to be west coast or expected to be with the Addition of Tim Kelly, but their start to the season will be affected by their two key defenders having no pre-season and expected to miss uh, part of the early part of the season. I speak of Jeremy McGovern and Tom Barass, who were both hampered by Barass with a foot injury and McGovern with various niggles. I'm not quite sure which which ones are the ones he's currently attending to, but both are not expected to play rounds one or two. So that is a
0: setback. Yeah, well, I had uh, they had their share of injury dramas last year, of course, and McGovern always seems to have injury dramas. So uh, they're certainly, a, uh, I think, going to be a big player this year, and very shortly we'll talk about them. Any other injuries it, caught your eye? Jake Collegazny. Oh, uh, yeah. He's of Geelong. Yeah.
1: He's going to have a slow start to the season. He won't be ready for round one. I believe, a shoulder or hip injury for him. I know they're different parts of the body, but I've got to check up on that, but definitely not going to be there round one. And a big scare, but A-OK for Mark Murphy, who went off with a serious ankle injury at training, went away for scans, but no structural damage, um, which means he'll be right for the start of the
0: year. I thought I saw Mark Murphy uh, playing in the Australian Open against Nick Kyrgios the other night. Did you watch that game? Uh, Cut, uh, is it? Catching off. Catching off. I don't reckon he
1: looks like Mark Murphy. I didn't consider it at the time. I'd have to go back and. No, no. That That was a good game.
0: uh, It it was great, and we'll touch on that shortly as well. Um, All right, look, uh, while we're talking about football, we have been reviewing the prospects of a few different clubs each week in the run up to the new season. So I thought today, uh, drawing on the one from each six of the ladder um, criteria, We would start by having a look at Carlton, who finished 16th last year, 7 wins, 15 losses. But you'd have to say, with a fair bit more optimism going into this year than last, uh, revitalised, you'd have to say, by the appointment of David Teague, firstly as filling coach after the sacking of Brendan Bolton, but now on a permanent basis. And the return of a prodigal son finding in Eddie Betts to the fold uh, for this year. How are you feeling about the Blues in 2020?
1: Well, part of the injury uh, news that could have been presented, I held back because we're doing Carlton, is Charlie Curnow not being ready for the start of the season. He had a mishap on a basketball court. They were thinking that everything was okay, but he's had to go back in for some knee surgery. So he's going to miss the start of the season, which is problematic. Gee, they're going to have a good forward line when it's up and running, though, because I think Harry Mackay is ready to take the next step or, or almost has taken the next step. I think he's going to be a an imposing type forward for many years to come. And with Charlie Kernow, you can certainly structure a forward line around that. They had simulated match practice on the weekend and Jack Martin was a standout. So include him and an, an omnipresent and dangerous Eddie Betts In that forward line. I I think it's going to be a handful. I thought Wietering just showed some glimpses at the end of last season. Big return of Sam Doherty is going to make a difference if he's anything like the Sam Doherty that was lost a couple of years ago to two knee injuries. Mm. So I feel that Carlton, certainly with Cripps in the centre, marshalling the troops, um, the uh, young Sam
0: Walsh. Walsh,
1: of course, is our rising star and you can build a midfield around that. I think the the framework is in place for a steady improve up the ladder. So I'm going to say they're going to improve, that we'll see them between 12th and 10th. That's pretty specific. But don't be too high in expectations for a finals appearance but I believe we're ready to see that in the next couple of years.
0: Well there was definitely a bit of uh, uh, more than a bit, there was definitely a fairly major upward curve after T took over they only won one of their first 11 games they won 6 of their last 11 and lost 2 more by less than a goal so you know, it wasn't just a sort of one-off spike. There was some fairly consistent improvement there. The other guy he didn't mention, I think, made a difference was Levi Kasbolt sort of finding his feet uh, as a defender. Yes. yes. Um, the other big factor for them was they sort of went back to basics a bit. They, um, I was talking to an insider about this, and there was, and this isn't to criticise Brendan Bolton, but he was all about the future. Perhaps rushed it a bit too much, so that this led to things like Mark Murphy and Ed Kerno being played away from the midfield uh, to expedite the development of younger guys. They they went back to getting those blokes in their best positions. I think they started being a little more basic about their setups around the uh, stoppages, e.g. they found it incredibly hard to score. They were sort of setting up defensively, even at stoppages in their forward line. Overly
1: structured? Were yeah, they? I
0: think so. And that, that sort of stopped, so they went back to a bit more instinctive type football. Um, big problem for me is probably still the skill level. Uh, they're not a very efficient side in fact, they were 17th for disposal efficiency last year. That doesn't tee everything. It can be a bit misleading. They don't get their hands on the footy probably enough. Um, but I think you're looking around that list now and you can see strengths uh, in all parts of the ground. So one other... Incl- and Eddie Betts, look, there's, you know, um, I guess speculation about where he's at in his career. And he's certainly tailed off in the last couple of seasons. But I just think the... Um, morale boost even from him coming back could be far more significant than people think just as a uh, I guess a, a a keeper of spirits around the place and out in the field um and certainly the fans are going to love that I agree he's I think he's still worth
1: his place on an AFL in an, on an AFL field but in a Carlton jumper I agree with you it's many times more valuable than any other jumper because of what he stands for at the club and his keenness to get back to the club suggests something positive about how Carlton is tracking at the moment. It's it's a feel-good story that can parlay into victories. I agree.
0: So seven wins uh, in totality last year. How many wins can you see him getting this Nine year? Nine or ten. Yeah, I, I reckon ten should be a minimum they're setting their sights on, I think.
1: Yeah. All uh, right. Make, make this year a good springboard into a regular finals team for the next few years is would be, would be the aim uh
0: next cab off the rank i thought we'd go to the uh the top of the middle part of the ladder alphabetically speaking that's, so it's not a ladder is it that's confusing uh yeah, <laughs> i just forget i said that um but i wanted to talk about the hawks finally the perennial hawthorne football club because even when they're out of contention they're never out of contention for long and I feel like, um, you know, for a side which missed out in the finals, uh, and particularly given they'd finished top four in 2018, you'd look at that superficially and say, well, they're on a downer. But I think they're sort of heading into a new season with a fair bit of optimism. Uh, that's based on a few things. One, by far the most significant for me is the return to the fray of Tom Mitchell. Uh, Reigning, not raining. But a Brownlow medalist yet to play a game since uh, winning that Brownlow medal, of course that uh, horrible broken league in last pre-season, didn't play a game, but he'll be back, might take him a little while to to get back, it was a particularly bad break, but he's going pretty well Um, and that's coming from the horse's mouth, heard an interview with him the other day and uh, he's coming along pretty well but I like the way the hawks finished the season. They won 6 of their last 8 games. Definitely got a bit more flow and uh just a, they looked a, a bit more cohesive as a unit, I think. And uh, a pretty big in um for them too in the form of former Giants key forward uh, Jonathan Patton. Less of a name, but I think a guy who could still be a fair bit of use to them is uh, Sam Frost joining the fray from Melbourne as well. So where do you see Hawthorne? Well,
1: first of all, I agree with the importance and the value of the signing of Sam Frost. I think he'll be a key player for them, a sturdy defender, and maybe something that allows them to not necessarily just automatically pick his former teammate James Frawley who I don't think is right for all conditions James Frawley Mm. so they still hang on to some older players Burgoyne of course going around again there are some immeasurables with Hawthorne and you've touched on them how will Tom Mitchell return Will Patton who was a irregular appearance for JWS because of injury issues he's had three knee knee reconstructions Mm. How will he, A, stand up uh, physically, but also how will he fit into a forward line that it's going to be interesting, the form of the forward line. We know traditionally that they've had a forward line, Or when I say traditionally, in recent years, uh, it's relied on Brewston Gunston, but that Mm. may be different this year with Mitchell Lewis's development last year that I thought was a real tick for the club.
0: And Tim O'Brien.
1: Tim O'Brien went forward and was... A very useful performer. Now, that, of course, is too many bigs in the forward line, far too many talls. Puopolo goes around again. Does he? He does, doesn't he? he I'm, I'm sort of questioning myself because it's amazing. He seems to be able to get another year, another year. He's really there. Premier small forward, or at least crumbing forward still. I, I look to find where they're going to be effective at the drop of the ball in the forward line.
0: Well, the thing here, I mean look scoring has been a, a real strong point for them until last year. They only finished 11th for points scored and really lost a lot of their efficiency, which is which also almost,
1: Which almost says Bruce Bruce and Bruce, doesn't it?
0: But yeah, but they remain a uh, a pretty good side in terms of exerting that forward pressure. So that also means to me, I don't think it'd take that much to turn it around. And, and I think uh, having, I don't know, i just think with Patton, you know, we we really haven't seen anywhere near the best of him for mainly for injury. I think there's a real point to prove with him. I mean, he's been in the system a long time now. I reckon. You might just see sort of why he was a number one draft pick, and if that's the case, uh, obviously no Jared Ruffhead anymore, but gee, it's a fairly handy replacement. The other thing the, with... With Patton,
1: just t- talking about him, he was forced a long way from goal because of Jeremy Cameron, I feel. Yeah. You know, I think of Patton at GWS, and a lot of his work was done around the 50 metre line, and... Maybe he's an opportunity, and it'll be dependent on what they view as Mitchell Lewis's role, I think, for him to play closer to goal and play more like a true full forward. And that could be the uncorking of the genie that is the best of
0: Patton. Uh, The other big plus they have here, and it's become a cliche, but it's their coaching. Alistair Clarkson is... Far and away the best coach in the caper. He's proven it consistently. And he did it again last year. He's done this repeatedly in years when they haven't been doing so well in, in recent times. He's used the opportunity to try guys in, in different positions to find things that may maybe people hadn't thought were possible for them. Oh, gee, I mean, one thing they did towards the end of last year, um, big boy McAvoy, they started playing him as a key defender and had some success doing that. So uh he's prepared to try things in order to sort of develop not just a team that's going to limp into the finals but a team that can really contend for flags and uh look the other we should if we're talking about their best players you know two guys who I think really stepped up let in, me get
1: can i guess can I guess them yeah, one will be Walpole, correct. Maybe not stepped up, but, gee, is an important player for them.
0: Absolutely, and, and yeah, I had him already stepping up, but the other guy I was going to mention was Jager O'Meara. Yeah, I mean, they yeah, bought point. him as a, a bit of a Rolls-Royce, and he's sort of a bit of a forgotten man in that regard, but he's really got back to somewhere near his best. So um, I, I think they're, they're absolutely a – well, they finished ninth last season anyway, so they're obviously a finals contender, but would not be surprised at all ...to see the Hawks uh, right back up near that top four. Uh, Okay, last club we're going to talk about this week. And speaking about, uh, there'll be a lot of people jumping on this bandwagon. And I speak of West Coast, of course. Premier's 2018 out in week two of the finals last year. So they finished sixth, 16 wins and eight losses. It was a it wasn't a shocking premiership defence, but they it was a struggle for a lot of a the time. They had um, a lot of issues with injuries, and they just couldn't ever sort of seem to get much momentum going. They'd win a few in a row and you think, Oh, here we go and then they'd drop one unexpectedly. Sort of battled to reach the same levels of hunger I felt that they really had at the right time of the season in twenty eighteen. But No doubt about the quality of the personnel, albeit you did mention the delayed starts uh, through injury of Barras and McGovern, but much of the optimism around them due to the arrival of one man, and it's a huge inclusion, uh, the arrival of Tim Kelly.
1: Yeah, when you just have a look at the basic, um, probably misses in that team, when it's up and running, a great forward line. When it's up and running obviously injury-dependent. The back line looks sturdy as all heck. Mm. And you probably would say that the midfield just needed that one big-bodied player, and there it is. But but there is more to West Coast than that. There's more issues than that. When I say more issues, Kennedy last year, combination of injury, illness, never got the season going. Now, he is an ageing commodity, isn't he? He is. Can he step up and have... A full, not twenty-two game, but a full season and impact with a fifty-plus goal year. I, I think he, mark.
0: well, I think he can, and I think Jack Darling um, has really, you know, emerged on uh, on a consistent basis. Not just the sort of guy who really, yeah, I do.
1: I think he's either very good or very poor. Well,
0: I reckon you're a bit harsh on both of them. Last season they combined for more than a hundred goals. Yeah, I I'm, mean, so in a year <laughs> that was yeah, perceived yeah. as being a failure, that's not bad. Yeah, I'm
1: just saying a year on. You know, Kennedy's in the latter part of his career. Question mark. I'm not saying that question mark will be answered in the negative. Mm. And I think Darling can get his 50 or 60 goals, but I don't think they come at two or three goals a week. I think there's good weeks and bad weeks. That's they're, okay.
0: They're a very efficient side too. Now, the smaller forwards. Last year, uh, Jamie Cripps and Liam Ryan combined for 60 goals. They're a very efficient side. They were first in the competition for goals per Inside fifty defensively, we know we know they're very strong. They're great at that inter, uh, picking off and intercepting game and, and rebounding. You mentioned the midfield, and given the strength of their forward setups over the years and their defence, it's sort of fu- strange to me that we look at the midfield and say it's a weakness. Because when you look at the names of the individuals—Elliot Yo, Luke Shuey, Andrew Gaff, and Dom Sheed for starters—boy, there's some talent there. As a collective, though, they have, they have tended to struggle in. Particular areas, most namely contested possession. They ranked last in contested possession last year, which would surprise a lot of people. Even in their flag year, it was something they struggled with, but really picked it up in in uh, probably the last six seven weeks of the season. And this is where Kelly is going to be such a bonus for them. Not just a guy that consistently wins high possession numbers, but he's consistently good at winning that contested ball. In fact, I think. Last series, contestable stats were better than any of those guys I just mentioned, other than perhaps Yo. So you throw him in there as well. There are five absolute quality names to start going through that midfield.
1: Uh, that midfield, maybe not for depth, but when you put them front up, you've got sort of and wingmen are now important because they they are flushing that area with with Gaff and sometimes Yo plays out on the wing. But you're right, they with Kelly, have a powerful binfield. Now, who's going to be the ruckman? Oh, well, we
0: haven't even mentioned uh, the return of Nat Nui, who, from all accounts, has had a really good preseason.
1: Which is what he needed, because I was critical of him last year, not in his form when he played, but the fact that he was re-injured and struck me as somebody who was not as lean as he could be, and that is vitally important. As you get older in football and you've got knee and had leg problems, you've got to keep the weight off. But as you say, reports are very bullish about him. Almost for me, the tipping point of premiership contender or not will be the fitness of Nat Nui, because I think with Nat Nui, they can... Win the flag.
0: Well, like it gives them flexibility too, because like Hickey was a, a really handy yep. recruit for yes. them. Went very well in the ruck. so the, I think is every uh, reason to play Nat Nui say as a key forward. You mentioned Kennedy's durability, so they they have options there. Uh, for me, absolutely a flag contender, and you know I, I haven't done my ladder yet, but um, I'm certainly going to be having them top four and perhaps a bit higher than that. Where have you got them?
1: I've got them top four. So important, no team, I think, is more reliant on the difference between top two and three and four, because top two sees the real likelihood of them making a grand final, courtesy of two home finals. Mm. Are they good enough to finish top two? Things have to go right for them. They, They can't just cruise into top two, so that'll be the... Watched for them for the season, but I think they're a top four team.
0: Yeah, if you said likelihood of finishing top two, I would have them as one of the two. Yeah, I don't. Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, some other stuff around, of course, uh, around this time of year, Australian Open tennis, always the biggest sporting event in the country. Uh, we I'm wax still suffering. We wax and wane on our tennis a bit, but uh, this is turning out to be as and um, as we speak, we're halfway through, and of course tonight. A massive game with Nick Kyrgios taking on uh, Rafael Nadal. But it's been a pretty interesting tournament, this. Some big seeds have tumbled out. And there's been a couple of epic games, finally. Uh, Friday night, uh, Federer taking on Australia's Um, own John Millman. I have not recovered. And uh, I I missed that one. I'll put my hand up there. But I did watch the Nick kyrgios uh, Kachinov game on Saturday night, which was... Also an epic, and also decided by a fifth-set tiebreak.
1: So the new ten-point tiebreaker certainly has caught the imagination of Aussie tennis fans, as you point out with these two amazing games. But he had him. Milman had him eight four up in the ten-point tiebreaker.
0: So six points in a row, Federer to win it.
1: Yeah, but he had two serves. Yeah, Milman, mm. and he couldn't win those two points.
0: And that's tennis, though, isn't he it? He was
1: eight four, then. Federer had a point on service, 8-5 but at 8-5 he had two service points. Mm. You win one of them, there's enormous pressure. on. He had played so well. You just watch them rallying from the baseline and normally when Federer gets into baseline situations, certainly with players, unseated players, ultimately class provides the result but not in this one. Millman backcourt rallied him toe to toe, you know for five sets. There's a difference between winning and losing, and champions and champions and champions.
0: And what does that say about Federer? I mean, he's 38 years old. All the titles he's won. You know, he's down, uh, what, four match points in a fifth set tiebreak. Just that, um, it can't be underestimated, can it, the uh, level of the will to win of people of that ilk, and that is why they occupy the status they do.
1: Mate, he's harder to beat than shoe shoe. Pastry batter Do you, <laughs> did know, you, what, do you know what shoe pastry batter is? make uh, like a crockenbush? No I don't Stiffest of all batters Is that right? Yeah very hard to I'll, beat
0: I'll take that on board next time I'm battering um, Did you watch your Kyrgios game? Yeah I did uh, Four of the five sets uh, decided by a tiebreak. The only um, sort of uneven set was the first Which Kyrgios yeah. won 6-2 But look uh, Incredible! Uh, I, I thought it was a really, really mature, gritty win from Kyrgios. Yeah. He, he kept his by his standards, kept his cool the whole game. You know, things he got a bit heated there in that final set where he got uh, he got a warning about uh, going for the towel when he'd cut his hand, so he got a, a bit harshly done by. But I just thought there was a you hesitate to say new because he's. He never seems far away from an explosion. But there was a real maturity about how he handled that game, I reckon. I think new
1: is a very good term for curiosity. And maybe he has sort of been um, fast tracked. This is a ridiculous comment for some, How old is he? 24, 25? Mid 20s. Uh, he's fast tracked his maturity because this is one of the less mature people on the world sporting stage by the role he's played in the bushfire relief effort of tennis prior to the Australian Open. I think he feels a bit of a responsibility as uh, the ambassador for that relief effort because a lot of tennis players have come on board to present as a more mature and responsible person during the tournament. He had a bit of a meltdown in the second round match against Gilles Simon and then uncharacteristically in the press conference apologised for what he described as unacceptable behaviour. So it was an immediately apologetic and reticent Kyrgios, uh, signalling a more mature Nick Kyrgios. Now, he survived a five-set match where, in the past, grittiness has not been his greatest quality, and he was in control of two and a half sets in, and out of control, four and a half sets in. I thought he was going to lose. He himself thought he was going to lose. This is a mature performance, and he will require that maturity and his best tennis, and a level-headed, more um, sanguine approach to be able to beat Rafael Nadal. But he can beat him.
0: Well, uh, as uh, there's a fair chance he might be listening to this after that match has been decided. But uh, whatever happens in that game, fairly impressive tournament thus far from Kyrgios. Just uh, to wrap up this segment quickly, BBL coming towards... We should should
1: mention Ash Barty, who has had...
0: You do this every single thing.
1: You should have mentioned it. Well,
0: you should have jumped in and mentioned it. Because she, so mention it.
1: Because her conqueror at Wimbledon, Alison Risk of the United States, yep. was all over her after two sets.
0: 6-1 uh, the second set. She, she... pounded her. She's a big hitter, Risk. Yep.
1: Now, I thought she was gone. I really thought Barty was gone. This is a girl that had done exactly the same to her at Wimbledon, but she's made of sterner stuff and then had to face a very interesting post-match period because she was asked by... Jim Courier, or congratulated on winning on Australia Day. Now being, as she describes herself, a proud indigenous woman, um, had a probably a prepared answer but a really good response in the press conference to whether that question made her feel uncomfortable and that was she is proud of her heritage and proud of the country she lives in and the way she lives her life on any day of the year, whatever day that may fall on for people to celebrate is not for her to choose. But every day of the year she 's a proud indigenous woman putting forward her putting herself forward in the best possible way to represent her people
0: nicely handled and um, she 's going to get plenty of practice at answering questions like that I suspect now uh, Bbl coming towards the pointy end um, it 's been a tournament with some incredible uh, individual performances with the bat, and we saw another one of them. Yesterday, Matthew Wade, 130 not out for the Hobart Hurricanes, off just 61 balls, 11 fours, seven sixes. And the Hurricanes uh, spanked one for 217. He and Darcy Short doing the damage. Short ended up with 72. And the strikers, uh, they gave it a pretty good nudge at one stage. Looked like they might even overhaul that tally. In the end, fell short at eight. for 207, but that basically, th- almost certain that gets the Hurricanes into the finals. Uh, again, we, we talked about this last week, the crowd numbers have been down. Uh, haven't seen those TV figures in recent times with this year's BBL. Um, we have talked about the novelty having worn off, but um, it's been a, a I guess, a return to an extent of uh, batting prowess, this one. Last year's was heavily dominated by the ball, I felt. So, uh, sort of heading towards a pretty entertaining final series, I think, Finally,
1: Are you tipping the stars to win it?
0: Um, Well, they do, aren't they? They uh, lost the unlosable final last year when they were, uh, what, they were one down uh, against the Renegades with only another 80-odd needed and uh, lost... They lose 8 for 32 or some ridiculous figure like that And they've been consistently a high finisher But uh, not being able to get the chocolates So this might be the year But uh, there's some sides hitting their straps At the right time of the season as well So I think it's going to be a good finish
1: And I just want to mention the Under-19 Cricket World Cup
0: Yes Australia How would Japan go?
1: Well, unfortunately, look, they had a miracle result. They drew their first game because yep. the rain came and saved them against New Zealand. And then they played the powerhouse India, and after a steady opening, the opening pair put on 13, they lost the openers, and I've got to say the middle order did let them down. You you hope your batting strength is 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, and they just didn't score enough runs. How many runs, you ask?
0: Uh, How many runs did they score?
1: What's not enough runs from middle order?
0: Um, Ten. (laughs) They didn't score
1: any. Two, three, four, five, six and seven all made a duck.
0: Right, okay. So what was the innings total? 41. Yeah, okay. That's pretty poor.
1: (laughs) But the big game was Australia-England because both had lost to the West Indies and were in a knockout game to decide who advanced to the quarterfinals. And I've got to say, Australia have pulled off one of the great wins of all time, chasing 253 for victory. They found themselves almost done and dusted at seven for 184 with six overs to go. Mm. And they pulled it out of the fire. It was just a fantastic effort. Connor Sully, a bowler more than a batsman, batting at number nine, uh, hit three sixes and a four in the 48th open to keep their hopes alive but they again smashed runs in the 49th they needed two runs off the last two balls a misfield meant that scores were tied with one ball to go and sully hit a six over cover
0: well done so what stage of a tournament are we at
1: we're into the quarterfinals and australia will have a very tough quarterfinal against the tournament favorites india
0: Good luck, Aussies. All right, very crowded news segment today. Uh, Let's slow the pace down a little and talk about life matters, Finey. Life Hacks. Building a better world. All right, uh, life hacks, uh, like we say every week, could be anything, an observation, a feeling, a um, strong Opinion about something, just anything that's sort of lodged in our uh, conscious or subconscious even, Finey, uh, why don't you kick us off?
1: I shall kick us off, and this comes under the category of first world problems, so you can take this one with a grain of salt, or that's probably not a bad way to kick it off, and that is Melbourne, and greater Melbourne, is currently devoid of flock. There's no
0: flock. And what is flock, Finey? It's some cooking term or something? No, it's something you should know about. Now, I'm a very new pool owner, but
1: pools around Melbourne last week were laid ruin by the heavy red rain. And apparently, the easiest way to clean up the dust that is ruining these pools is with a substance called flock that makes the dust all clump together and easier to vacuum.
0: Is that right? But
1: there's no flock left, so I'm flocked because I've just been vacuuming this pool endlessly for the last five days and can't get rid of this onto-car-like
0: red dust well, I'm flocked because you've just pinched not only a life hack, but my rant. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> we should, I'm uh, sure you can extend on it in the rant. I, I, I will be. We should compare notes on these things. But uh, flock, there you go. I wish I'd known. But it is a
1: true first world problem.
0: Oh, it, it is. But uh, after you've dealt with that first world problem, you feel like you've been living in the third world. Um, all right, first one for me, uh, I'm going to talk about the Triple J Hottest 100, Fonny, because it's become a bit of an annual thing with us old codgers to slag off the Hottest 100. Oh, what is this crap? Um, and uh, I don't know any of these songs and all that, and I, I've got over that hump, I, I I can deal with the fact that I don't know any of the stuff now, and I probably won't like it. Although... I can still remember the absolute horror with which I listened to the number one song of 2012, which was uh, Macklemore's Thrift Shop. I still think that's close to the worst thing I've ever heard to this day. Um, it uh, was an interesting Hottest 100. Uh, this is announced on Saturday, of course. Uh, interesting by virtue of the fact that the for the first time a female solo artist ended up at number one, and that was Billie Eilish with Bad Guy. Um, so I made myself have a listen to that. And in, by, um, in comparison with some of the other number ones, I thought it was interesting. And, uh, you know, it had an obvious decent beat. The vocals are quite interesting. She's a bit of a sort of a, a mumbler. Um, but, uh, you know, I could sort of understand why that went to number one. Number two was, uh, Flume, I think was it rushing back, uh, ch- ch- Charlie and, uh, more rat. Uh, I had heard, uh, dance monkey by tones and I, I thought that might go number one, but I've got to say finally, is an old codger and a, uh, bit of a, um, headbanger, and you know how much I love this band, very encouraged by the fact that the number five song in the Triple J Hottest 100 this year was a cover of the classic Rage Against the Machine track Bulls on Parade by US rapper Denzel Curry, and I've heard that version, I heard it when it came out, and it is a cracking version does absolute justice to the original, and that came number five, so it made me think, perhaps uh, fleetingly, but are we about to get a bit of a rock revival among the younger generation? I wouldn't hold your breath. No, I'm not really.
1: But at least there's some course for optimism.
0: Yes, all right, your next one.
1: Okay, my next one is... I'm going to go with a TV tip for you, okay. and maybe the listeners can join in because it's a program that I watched because of you. Ah, what is it? It's only the first episode of the first series, but it had two things that added up to me thinking I might get on board with this, and yep. that is your absolute love of Veep. Oh ah, yes, and the fact that the same people that made Veep have are behind this, and it stars one of my favourite actors, Hugh Laurie. Hugh Laurie, yeah. What's it called again? Avenue 5. Right. Now, interestingly, it's only a half-hour program. Yeah. Which is interesting because it's on once a week on uh, Foxtel or wherever I saw it. But half hour a week, that's a pretty thin slice, isn't it? Nevertheless, it was a full half hour, just the basic premise. There's the equivalent of an ocean liner is now a space liner, sometime in the not-too-distant future, taking wealthy tourists on a tour of our uh, our... our galaxy probably, you know, in and around Jupiter and just doing a a bit of a flyby of some planets. And they have some gravitational problems. And what should have been a four-week cruise is now a minimum of three years. I
0: don't know why, but just into my head. A three-hour tour. I think that's sort of (laughs) a
1: bit of the premise. The problem is, and this sets up the humour, that... When that accident occurred, the chief engineer, Joe, was outside fixing something and unfortunately got sucked into the universe and killed. Bad, but even worse, when it is revealed that he, in fact, is the captain of the ship. Ah. That, the, people that who, the person who people think is captain, Hugh Laurie, is in fact an actor employed by <laughs> the cruise line company or the Sky Cruise Company because he looks like a captain and acts like a captain and presents far better than Joe but he knows nothing about the ship he speaks with an american accent except when he's under pressure or being honest and then his british accent comes out so interestingly Hugh Laurie plays both accents he's famous for british being his real one american his adopted one in house and we're set up for plenty of opportunities for humour i wouldn't say it was hilarious but the setup is there and well worth continued watching.
0: And that's on Foxtel, is it? Yeah. Yes. Okay, I'll tune in. I I have uh, started IQing, haven't seen it yet, but a uh, new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Can't wait for that. Season 10, I think it started last Monday. Yes. Uh, so second episode, I think, will be on tonight. So set your IQ for that. Does that feel like it's
1: episodic, or is it one whole... Because some, some series of Curb Your Enthusiasm were sort of episode-by-episode episode self-contained stories. Yeah. Others are sort of 10 interconnected stories. Yeah, yeah, I,
0: I don't know. I've only seen the trailer, yep. um, but the, uh, I, I saw a couple of reviews. I didn't want to have any spoilers, so I sort of steered away, but uh, the reactions seemed very positive. Meanwhile, I, I continue to plough my way through old episodes of Seinfeld, and I did see for the first time in years and years and years the other night, I've IQ'd all this, um, the marine biologist... Episode. Oh, and go on, you can do the quote.
1: Well, there's a few quotes, but...
0: The, the quote. George's quote.
1: Well, the sea was angry that day. That's it. Like an old man returning his no, soup. No, the sea
0: was angry that day, my friends.
1: <laughs> like an old man in a deli returning his soup. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's a very good episode. But but
1: then at the end he goes, and do you know what I pulled out of that bloke? I saw that
0: one coming, though. I did see that one coming. Um, All right, my second one, uh, well, yeah, I haven't got time to come up with another one. So, yeah, I was going to go with the uh, the Raining Mud. Um, Have you ever... So last Wednesday night we were out for uh, my stepson Sam's 20th birthday and uh, we're down in Oakley actually at a local Greek establishment. Uh, Plenty great, of those in Oakley. Well, great little area if you like Greek culture and Greek food. And uh, we're sitting outside and uh, it just looks so ominous. And often when you, you, you know, it's got that sort of I don't know, brownish tinge about it when it's been hot till so you... You think, oh, thunder, you know, a bit of hail and whatever. I certainly wasn't expecting mud. And uh, you mentioned the pool, and again, I don't want to steal my own thunder here, but we've had some issues in the past with um, something that discoloured our pool. And I went out the next morning and saw it, and I thought, not again. And then I actually, um, for about an hour, I was thinking, oh, how am I going to deal with this again? And then someone said, oh, it's happening all over Melbourne. I saw all these tweets of people sending in pictures of their uh, pools that have been turned brown and raining mud. We had, you know, like brown, orangey-brown stains all over the concrete and cars and what is going on (laughs) in the world? It's raining mud. Uh, You could almost... Uh, the Weather Girls could come back and do a version of that <laughs> it's raining mud um, But bizarre, bizarre Just And the, the really uh, ominous sort of orangey sky That loomed before it happened uh, Just weird, strange days indeed So that was my second one And your final one? Uh, my final one
1: is My absolute disgust with all convenience stores sort of I'm not singling out 7-11 because happens with all of them you know petrol stations and the connected convenience stores it's almost impossible to go and buy a drink at a reasonable price because the fridges are filled with 2 for $7.50 2 oh, for yeah. $8 2 for $6 man is not a camel i just want a drink mm. and I think it's very irresponsible because, you know, there's certainly campaigns against obesity and at the front line is sugary drinks and they're almost forcing, cajoling customers into buying, you know, if you want a bit of a a sugar hit and a, a fizzy drink, that's one thing, but they're almost making you or making it impossible to buy one and forcing you into two and I think that's completely wrong.
0: All right, fair enough. Yeah, I've, I've, uh, my. In fact, as you said that, my hand, like I've got so practiced at going to our local BP, opening the fridge, and grabbing with one hand two cans of Coke, no sugar, because uh, you can get two for four dollars, finey. Yes. But I've now uh, overcome that problem and created a far bigger problem of a serious caffeine addiction. Because at the supermarket, you can buy a carton of 30 cans of Coke, no sugar for $20. Whoa. It Yeah, exactly. And uh, so I have just been, yeah. I've that's got, a lot of sugar. I, well, Coke, no, no sugar, sugar fine. Well, that's, uh, sorry. 1.4 calories per can.
1: I should say that's a lot of sugar substitute.
0: And just on that too, my weight loss campaign continues. I've now lost nine and a half kilos. Well well done, mate. Yes.
1: It certainly shows. Is it?
0: Uh, Well, I've got to keep going. I'm only about halfway there. All right, final one for me and uh, a more serious one. This is, of course, the uh, and you touched on the Australia Day holiday. Should we have a public holiday at all? Uh, Today on the Monday, 27th, given that Australia Day officially is the 26th, um, I am, as you know, quite active on Twitter and quite political and this is something I've come to feel strongly about and so I'm going to read you what I tweeted uh, yesterday. Uh, just pad for a moment while I find it.
1: Yes, this is of course myself padding as Rowan seeks out something off his mobile apparatus.
0: And uh, your thoughts on Australia, I might as well get your thoughts up front.
1: Um, I am actually of the belief that we should try and find another date. Now I know that that is controversial, and a lot of people will dig their toes in. And Australia Day, if that happens, there is the danger of January the twenty-sixth being a sort of a, a line in the sand day for people who some have innocent enough nationalistic fervour, others more sinister reasons and I don't want January the twenty sixth to become a powerful day for people with racist sentiment, but it is strongly felt by the indigenous community that we are celebrating and it for a long time we were celebrating the arrival of or the start of their genocide. And I think that we as a as a mature nation can pick a day that is for all Australians.
0: I agree. Um, No, what I was digging in, I was just finding my tweet. I felt like I should tweet something about it, so I tweeted the following. Anyone my age knows damn well until the mid-90s, Australia Day was barely a blip on the radar, except for the first inhabitants for whom it's a source of pain. There's no deep emotional attachment to January the 26th. Opposition to changing the date is just bloody-mindedness. Uh, as I speak, finding that has gone up to 5,326 likes. So it is officially my most liked tweet. And I'm not, uh, it's been retweeted 781 times. And uh, I'm not going to lie, there's a fair bit of opposition to that as well. But, you know, when you tweet something and the number of comments far outweighs the number of likes, you've been ratioed. Yes. Well, I certainly haven't because uh, there's 356 comments and a lot of them were. In agreement, uh, just quickly, I, I I feel like you about it. I, I feel like I, I didn't have strong feelings about it, but clearly the Indigenous community, for obvious reasons, finds it a upsetting, disturbing reminder of their dispossession as a race. So uh, I just don't think that it's something that we do have a deeper emotional attachment to. Uh, f- for starters, until... 1994, it wasn't even a national public holiday. It's only been a national public yeah, holiday right. for 26 years. Yeah, right. The date of Australia Day has varied. It's been in July. It's been in August. That was prior to the 1930s. Um, and you and I bo- both know that it, it's really only been that sort of post-John Howard era, sort of 96 onwards, where it's sort of developed this, I find, quite off-putting sort of hand-on-heart, jingoistic, flag-waving. And one of the things I truly love about Australia or have loved about Australia being Australian is our uh, us not needing to be like the Americans, not needing to have that overstated sort of schmaltzy patriotism, you know, last refuge of the scoundrel and all that. I think
1: people have had their fill of it. You know, I was out a bit yesterday. I was on, uh, down at uh, Middle Park Beach and at the beaches and there was not a lot of that. Australian flag wavery, there was though a big effort right across where I was yesterday in Melbourne for bushfire relief, and there were no fireworks actually yesterday, so that was a symbol of how conscious we are of it. So maybe here's a good breaker, and from we can have that discussion this year.
0: Yeah, well I, yeah I think that the tide is turning I think it's a generational thing too I think um, younger people are sort of far more uh, conscious of the the sensitivities around it I did take the opportunity as well to throw out the uh, an alternative flag design um, which you can see on my Twitter feed if you want but I'll tell you what like I just in the end I, I was on Twitter so long yesterday just responding to various thoughts about it that... Um, and, oh, I, we...
1: yeah, give us an example.
0: Oh, well, here's, okay, here's a negative one from Ken Holmes. What's wrong with a date? Get over it. Just celebrate what a great nation we are. Everyone gets so sensitive these days.
1: Yeah, of course, everybody gets so sensitive. Not everybody.
0: Well, I feel like in, responding re- to this one indigenous right Indigenous but...
1: Australians are very sensitive about the manner in which they were dispossessed of their of their lands and go down and ask the Tasmanian Indigenous community what they think about it. Oh, sorry, they they don't really exist or certainly not in any real form because they were wiped out by a particularly zealous Tasmanian governor who tried to... Impose himself on the Australian situation by wiping out the Indigenous community. So I mean, there's, and, there's, was, and was rewarded with great honours and money back in England.
0: This is one of the frustrations of Twitter because I, I outlined exactly my case for changing the date, and this guy just says, "What's wrong with it? Get over it." So I mean, how do you argue with "get over it"? And completely ignores the point I've made. Uh, Here's another one. I did did respond to a lot. Here's one of the more objectionable ones. This guy says, Support for changing the date is just left-wing idiocy. Australia, love it or just F off. So I retweeted that one. I thought, bugger this bloke. And I said, uh, no, uh, Stuart Barker that was. Uh, No, Stuart, support for changing the date is about respecting all who live or lived here. And frankly, we'd be a far better place if people like you did what you just advised.
1: Well, I, I would respond differently, Rowan. Yes. Uh, so if you don't like Australia Day in its current form, F off. Where do you suggest Indigenous Australians F, <laughs> Australians F <laughs> off to? Yeah. Where, where, where should they go? Should yeah. they go home?
0: That's a good one. I'll, uh, I'll keep that in my locker, although to be honest, I've, I've had enough of responding to it.
1: The The one thing, how do you feel about the danger of changing the date and making Australia uh, January the 26th a sort of... a a, a Red Letter Day for Cronulla types, you know the, that sort of the flag, the the real flag waving um, haters.
0: Yeah, look, it's going to have to be done in a, a a smart fashion, which worries me to begin with, given the quality of our politics these days. But I, I think it can be used as occasion to, I guess, make people you know more alert to Indigenous issues and and culture and. Um, uh, you know, look, I just constantly look to New Zealand and how they've sort of far more seamlessly integrated the Maori culture with white culture.
1: But the huge difference there was that the Maoris were not defeated by the invading English. In fact, the invading English had to sign a treaty with the more powerful Maori armies. You know, they were not subjugated, defeated or slaughtered In fact, it could have been the other way around. No, but the
0: the yeah, but I'm talking about in a modern context. I mean, it's but they had
1: the numbers. Therefore, they've always had political power and numerical numerical relevancy.
0: Look, we need to grow up as a country, in my view. Part of that is acknowledging that we do have a shady past, and it needs to be recognised part of it for me is becoming a republic and cutting the apron strings and part of it for me and yes it's symbolic but for me it is important is changing our flag so we don't have another nation or or empire's flag on ours so I mean that's my opinion and feel free to disagree but I guess the reaction to that tweet certainly proof that there is a a very active discussion going on, and it's not going to go away. So if you're tired of it and just get over it and celebrate whatever, sorry, uh, we are going to continue talking about it.
1: And I did say Cronulla types. I'm not trying to tar everybody with the same brush No, we know in you You 2005. I'm talking about that dark day down in the Shire.
0: And uh, we can thank Alan Jones particularly for causing that to happen. And when I speak about division, that's the sort of person I'm talking about. Alright, there's enough for uh, life hacks. We covered some fairly interesting territory there. I think it's time we went back in time finding and had a look at some great music, movies and TV from years gone by. Video the radio star. Video Vinyl the radio and Video. Star. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. Okay, let's go. Uh, people loving this segment, Fanny, and uh, I wrote down yesterday the various years we've done, and we've had a fairly even spread of uh, 70s, 80s, 90s, even a dip into the early years of the 21st century. But uh, it was my turn to choose this week, and again, no particular reason. I just thought of this year straight away. I guess significant for both of us. We both officially became adults in this year, and I speak of... 1983, so let's start with music, I'm going to kick us off this week, um, some very interesting albums came out this year, from an Australian perspective, you had uh, The Models, Pleasure of Your Company, not not one of my favourite Models albums, they would started to sort of make that change towards a poppier sound, but uh, still interesting, I think you had The uh, Massive, Uh, Real Life album, Uh, what was that called, Heartland, but of course Send Me an Angel was absolutely massive in that year. Internationally, we had uh, The Police brought out Synchronicity, REM, uh, an early favourite album of theirs, Murmur, Um, Tears of Fears, The Hurting probably started to come to some attention, and uh, yeah, close-ish runner-up from from me, and people may be surprised because given the commercial juggernaut U2 became, but I, f- I really like early U2. I think they were quite an edgy, uh, uh, bona fide rock band, and their album War, uh, I think, is their best album. It has uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday, it has New Year's Day on it, and a favourite U2 track of mine, Two Hearts Beat as One, uh, Surrender, another great song on that. So, really like War from U2. I'm sure U2 devotees will agree with me that is a great album. But, finally, my number one album of 1983, and I still remember how this came to my attention. I was a devotee of the ABC show Rock Arena, hosted by Suzanne Dowling. And uh I love the format of it. They would feature a couple of bands every week and have either interviews or play not just one but a whole lot of clips from that band. And this particular night, I think it was about July or August, it was suitably cold and bleak. Um uh they had a double header and the bands featured were the jam and uh the same evening sort of put me onto the jam. I came to like them quite a lot and this band, Echo and the Bunnymen, uh, who I'd heard the name, um, but I hadn't really heard anything, and they played half a dozen clips, all recorded in the same studio, and everyone will have seen one of them. uh, The album is Porcupine, Echo and the Bunnymen. It was released on the 4th of February, 1983. I still absolutely love this album because there is a real atmospheric feel about it finally it's cold and it's uh, bleak at times and a bit serious but it also rocks there's amazing instrumentation they've got uh, Ravi Shankar playing strings accompanying several tracks on this album and people saying what are the tracks on that album there's one absolutely massive song off Porcupine and it is The Cutter Still one of my favourite songs. In fact, I did a list of uh, 20, my t- top 20 songs of all time and I had the Cutter uh, low in the top 10. I love it. Beautiful track, uh, atmospheric, Ian McCulloch's vocals, uh, brilliant vocals. The other um, single from it, which was also pretty successful in Europe, less so here, but it's a real rocky number, Back of Love. they That is a killer one two opening punch to this album other tracks off it my white devil clay porcupine title track heads will roll ripeness higher hell gods will be gods and the final track in bluer skies which is the perfect finale to this album as well i was 18 years old and made a huge impact on me this album and um they didn't do a lot. Oh, they've had an interesting history. They another big album uh, which produced Killing Moon would follow, and then another self-titled one about four years after that. They disbanded. They've got back together in various guises a couple of times since. A uh, bit of tragedy too. Pete Defratus, the drummer, was tragically killed in a car accident or motorbike accident, I think, in 1989. Um, Great drummer too They had a great rhythm section He and Les Pattinson The bass guitarist Will Sargent on lead guitar I'm rambling a bit now But I do love this album And it is an album in the true sense of the word It really flows Has a logical progression Takes you through various moods Um, uh, It's a ripper I don't like a lot of English rock But uh, this certainly one of my favourite albums Porcupine, Echo and the Bunnymen
1: uh, you'll be pleased that I have an album, as I know that you. Good. F- favorite albums, by the way, the Cutter. We intersect there because that would be in my top ten favorite songs as well. Is that, that right? I love the Cutter. It's a great song with that great opening, that is lends itself to either sort of Middle East and Far East Asian.
0: <coughs> yeah. I'm sure we'll hear it at the end of the
1: show, but it's a great. It's a great song. Yep. Now, um. My album is by a group that really sort of burst into my reckoning, my consciousness in the important year of eighty-three, my last year of school, driver's license, getting away. Being Hang h- on,
0: why were you? Do? I thought we were born exactly the same. What's your when's what month is your birthday? May. Oh, okay. So did you? You did HSC in eighty-three. I
1: think so, or eighty-two. Didn't repeat, did you?
0: No. No. Oh, okay, eighty-two. I did HSC. Anyway. Oh, maybe
1: it was eighty-two. I'm not quite sure now. Anyhow, yeah, I should, I should check.
0: <laughs> Don't worry about it. Get, sorry, now, my interjection.
1: Nevertheless, we got the driver's license, was a big year. And this group, I explained last week or the week before about Erga Music War teaching me about ah, yes. alternative music sounds. And yep. one of the bands that I learnt to love from that was The Cramps yep. with this rockabilly punk sound, surf rock, surf punk. And that was taken up more commercially, by the Violent Femmes in 1983. And their album, Violent Femmes, self-titled, uh, is their sort of standout opus piece and gave us the hits that people recognise Violent Femmes for, Blister in the Sun, yes, my favourite, Gone Daddy Gone, uh. added up. Uh, there were other good tracks as well on, on the album. Kiss Off is a, a, a great track as well, and To The Kill. I don't know whether you like the violin fans. I, I,
0: but, but no, I, I wouldn't say I don't like them. I really, they're one of those bands that's escaped me. I've always been aware of them. I, I know, I've known the name, but Blister in the Sun and Gone, Daddy Gone are probably the only tracks I, I could tell you. So yeah. I, I plead ignorance on this one.
1: Yeah, I like, I like their sound and they sort of, not that I was the sort of person to play music in my parents' face to, you know, to differentiate my generation from their generation, but if I was, this would probably be the this album probably would have been the one I played the loudest.
0: They must have made a, a killing or still make a killing um out of royalties for Blister in the Sun. I mean, how many times do you hear that in yeah. ads and yeah, yeah. promos and
1: Well they still sort of tour as well the violent femmes yeah. in an aged uh less Edgy version, but still singing the same songs.
0: Right, no, no, it's a good call. You had some very, I wouldn't say underground taste, but non-commercial taste, didn't you? That's something I'm always accused of. Yeah. I've I got think my tastes are a bit more commercial in that period than they would become later on. Um, all right, I went first some uh, music, so you go first for movies.
1: Okay, uh, look, every year there's choices of many good movies.
0: All right. Can I? will give a, I'll give a list of the more popular ones. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. Because I um I'm just got to make sure you're not giving one of those. But no, one,
1: I guarantee you, you, won't be touching on mine.
0: Oh yeah. No. I, I do remember now. Uh, ones that stuck out for me: Return of the Jedi, of course. Uh, the third instalment in the. Oh, hang on. Who cares? Well, it was the third one filmed in the Star Wars uh, pantheon. Uh, risky business. Uh, Tom Cruise, of course, sliding in in his jocks, wearing the sunglasses. Scarface. Uh, you know, I haven't seen it, but uh, very good, popular very film.
1: Good. Have uh, say hello to my little friend.
0: Uh, a film I have seen. I thought was particularly good. Silkwood. Uh, about uh, Karen. Was it Karen Silkwood who yeah. worked at the? Was it Harris? Not, th- th-
1: uh, not Three Mile Island or whatever it was. Yeah, Three
0: Mile Island. That's what. That's what I meant. Yeah. Um, Local Hero, a uh, quirky little film about a uh, businessman in a small Scottish yes, yep. town, and uh, Mr. Mum with uh, Michael Keaton playing the uh, businessman who gets sacked and does the role reversal. It's
1: just a Michael Keaton. Even though I'd seen this movie a while ago on the weekend with my wife and one of my sons, I watched Birdman. Have you seen Birdman?
0: No, I haven't. It's oh, very Oh, is that Michael Keaton? Yeah. That one Best Picture, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is it good? Yeah, it is good. Yeah, it okay. Is. I remember there was some sort of mixed yeah, reactions it, to it winning Best Picture.
1: It, it's a, it's a little bit. Um, it's sort of made for actors. Yeah, actors would relate to it, but but it's very interesting.
0: Yeah, okay. No, I, I should uh, check it out. All right. Yes. Yeah, so your film of nineteen eighty three.
1: Okay. So my film of nineteen eighty three. I know I've been a little highbrow and sometimes art and. Self-indulgent in recent weeks, but this. know if you not... had
0: Tempopo, Realm of the Senses, Correct. what else? You oh, had I... anything that wasn't sort of Japanese porn? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have, <laughs> <laughs> um, but
1: I defer to my immature teenage self oh, yes, and my good. love of Rodney Dangerfield. Oh, yes, probably his less known least. Lesser known movie, right? It's, so it's not it's, Back to School. It's not Back to School or Caddyshack, right? It's Easy Money, and maybe my favourite of the few movies that he did make.
0: I remember the song for some reason. Easy you, Money. Yeah, who
1: was that? Not sure.
0: Okay, don't. Worry.
1: But in this movie, he plays a he plays himself virtually a a gambling, drinking, oppressed by the wife slob of a man who loves late-night pizza and hanging out with his mates. just turns out that his mother-in-law is extremely wealthy and he I think passes away and leaves him $10 million conditionally on giving up all of his vices. <laughs> yeah. And therefore, that sets up the movie. Yeah. Uh, there's one of my favourite lines of all time is in this movie the reaction of his friends to the fact that he has inherited $10 million or may inherit $10 million. And they go, you know, bang, 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 and they get to his bookie. And what does his bookie say? Remember, this is in 1983. $10 million, that could pile into a <laughs> <laughs> Um He, in the end, is true to himself and the slob wins out. But there's a heck of a lot of fun on the way, including typical Dangerfield lines like, Um his him and his son are building a model aeroplane on the family kitchen on the kitchen table and the wife comes in and says, Look, I've got to serve dinner. And he turns to his son and says, "Clean up that mess of Schmidt on the table."
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, my favourite too. I, I haven't seen a heap of him, but I, I've always remembered these two. My wife gives great headache, <laughs> and when I die, I'm going to donate my body to science fiction. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, I love his stand-up. You know, one of the highlights of his stand-up tape is a really rowdy crowd, and somebody yells out, and "I don't know whether this was set up or not." Hey, Rodney, how come you're so ugly? He goes, because you're contagious.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right, um, my, I think I'll go and see that now. My movie of 1983 almost went with uh, an Australian. Actually, I should mention it here: "Moving Out," um, which I thought was I thought you like, going
1: with BMX Bandits.
0: No, no, "Moving Out" was. I'm uh, pretty sure that was Vince Colosimo's first film. A lovely little story about a a Greek family which moves from its long time. Residence and uh, some lovely shots of inner suburban Melbourne Circa 1982-83 Yeah, no, it's a really nice movie But in the end, I couldn't go past this one uh, I thought it was a, a genuinely funny, funny film uh, Some great acting performances And I'm speaking of John Landis's Trading Places With Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy, Jamie Lee Curtis Denham Elliott, Ralph Bellamy And Don Amici, um, a really funny, funny film, um, based, or not based on, but sort of took inspiration from an old, uh, was it Mark Twain novel I think, but uh, basically it involves a uh, a trade of places. Um, Dan Aykroyd plays uh, managing director of a huge stockbroking broking firm, uh, Louis Winthorpe Third, and Eddie Murphy plays a um, sort of down-and-out uh, man on the streets, Billy Ray Valentine. They have a chance meeting where the uh, rather pompous Dan Aykroyd character insists that uh, Eddie Murphy be arrested over a, what is a bit of a mix-up, uh, and his sadistic... Uh, bosses, the Duke brothers who run the firm uh, played by Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici have a bet uh, looking at the two characters about whether nature uh, can triumph over nurture and the uh, the stakes in that bet are $1 but basically they frame uh, Dan Aykroyd's character so he gets thrown in jail they um, bail Billy Ray Valentine out of jail and install him in the position previously held by Louis Winthorpe III, who becomes a hapless and hopeless figure, um, suddenly cast into a world of poverty and desolation. His best friend is Jamie Lee Curtis, who is a hooker, of course, called Ophelia. Uh, You get the drift anyway, so Billy Ray Valentine um, thrives in his role and... Uh, Dan Aykroyd's about to top himself anyway uh they Billy Ray Valentine discovers the dastardly uh inhumane bet that uh, in which they've both been inadvertently caught up and they do a number on the Duke brothers by uh complicated story but they uh, a, a share market sting basically which uh they get their own back but it's uh just you know r- great uh, banter between the uh the main characters. Um, there's some memorable scenes on a train where they uh, have to sort of kidnap a bloke who is taking a very important uh, report to the uh, Duke brothers about the um, forecast for orange crops so they can corner the market on frozen orange juice. Um, Hilarity ensues. It's a very, very funny film, Uh, so Trading Places.
1: And coincidentally, the family sat down and watched that about 10 days ago. Oh, is that right?
0: How'd you watch it? Was it on... Fox or Netflix? Netflix. Or? Oh, or. It's
1: such a good movie. Yeah. A couple of my favourite lines from it, because I love lines in movies. Yeah. Um, this one I use quite a lot when I talk about cricket, because whenever I hear about Australia performing badly in England because of the ball, I remember the moment where, uh, um, uh, what's his name, Winslow, Winthorpe.
0: Yes, Dan Aykroyd, Dan Aykroyd, Louis Winthorpe III.
1: He's faced with Eddie Eddie Murphy's character. Yeah, and he knows that that's the per- he feels that that's the person that's cost him his uh, position in life. Yeah, and he starts strangling. Yes, him, and all that uh, Eddie Murphy can manage through basically constricted airways. It was the Dukes. It was the Dukes. And whenever I hear the Duke ball being responsible for Australia's demise, I say, it was the Duke. <laughs> okay. I, I love that. I, I also love when Dan Aykroyd tries to frame Eddie Murphy in a very ham-fisted attempt. He's drunk. He's dressed as Santa Claus. He's got a smoked salmon stuck in his beard that he's stolen from the buffet. And he's upstairs and he's very clumsily planted drugs in Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy's um, drawer, and he calls in the Dukes. <laughs> he goes, come here, come here, I found them. He's got all the drugs, all the bad ones, the uppers, the downers, <laughs> the yellows, the blues. <laughs> He's pulling the pills out of, oh, what a pathetic sight. And it really is a fun movie, and uh, the premise is quite simple, but from the very beginning when Eddie Murphy is begging for um, charity and claims to have no legs... And he's lifted up by police, and his legs
0: appear. It's a miracle. It's
1: a a Christmas miracle.
0: (laughs) And it's a a good comedy, isn't it? Sort of good triumphs over evil. Yeah, it's good fun. Great movie. All right, uh, TV. uh, I'll go first on this one. This was one of the first of the Australian mini series. I remember watching every moment of it when it premiered, uh, and it premiered deliberately the day after. the election of Bob Hawke on the 5th of March, my birthday, 1983. So a momentous day in Australian politics. This was uh, premiered the following evening. I speak of Channel 10's uh, six-part mini-series, The Dismissal, all about the 1975 constitutional crisis and uh, the sacking of Prime Minister Gough Whitlam, John Kerr, Malcolm Fraser, etc., etc. Um... Loved it. It was really, really well done. I remember thinking at the time, the likenesses were good. The voices were good. Um, It was pretty faithful to the chain of events. Um, And it it was just very, very well done. Directed by a couple of Australian film stalwarts, George Miller and Phil Noyce. Um, Gough Whitlam played by Max Phipps, very convincingly. Uh, John Kerr played very convincingly by John Millian. Uh, John Stanton um, did a great likeness to Malcolm Fraser. Uh, who else? John Hargraves as Jim Cairns. And Bill Hunter. Of course, what Australian movie of, or TV show of that era was complete without Bill Hunter. He played uh, minerals and energy minister, I think he was, Rex Connor. Um it uh, it rated its socks off. It was re- a really uh, important and uh, very well done piece of Australian TV, which subsequently, I don't know how long ago this was now, but it was voted 19th uh, in a poll of best Australian TV shows of all time. So it gives you an idea how it was received by critics and punters alike, the dismissal. I do love my politics, Viney, and political history, and that was a really good representation of um, major events in Australian political history.
1: Good choice. I have gone for Blackadder or The Blackadder. Now, we had a bit of a a discourse over whether or not this represented all Blackadder series or just the first one. Yes. Well, I think I, I do mark this as the start of... The four series. Well, it
0: is, of course. I, I just wanted to keep our powder dry for the other ones. I'll, I'll just, a uh, disclosure here. I I love Blackadder, but when I say I love Blackadder, I love the last three seasons of the four parts. I'm not such a big fan of the first one.
1: And I quite like the first one, though nowhere near the strength or development of characters. And Blackadder himself is quite a different character in the first one to the more um, rounded Machiavellian characters that we would see in 2, 3 and 4.
0: Yes, he's a bit sort of a feat,
1: isn't yes. he? But yeah. he has his he does plot. It's set in f- after 1485, the Battle of Bosworth, when Richard the Fourth becomes King of England, played by the very talented Brian Blessed and he has a second unfavoured son, Blackadder or Edmund known as Blackadder and he is subject to ridicule and in many cases near death but seems to always get through by the skin of his codpiece uh, because of his standing in society he's um he's wormy but nevertheless conniving and we see the introduction of um his offside of Baldrick, which would later become the famous pairing tony robinson and um Rowan Atkinson. Rowan Atkinson. And, yes, it's the weakest of the four, but I wonder if it was a standalone program, whether or not would have been would have been liked more. I mark it as good comedy that would go on to be great comedy, and interestingly, Blackadder, the series, the first one, and consequently, therefore, was a co-production between the BBC and...
0: Do you know? Uh... No.
1: Seven Network Australia.
0: Is that right? Yep. Wow. That's a, a vision, uh, rare vision on the part of a network uh, not famous for it over the years. Um, it, 83 filmed. The second, third and fourth seasons weren't, I think, until about 86, 87. Yeah, it, it,
1: it, they ran – it took – I think seven years to film the four to complete the four.
0: The big, the obvious difference though is the first season was written by Richard Curtis alone, yeah. and Ben Elton came in yeah. for the, and so uh, a tribute to Ben Elton, I guess, and we we obviously both sort of identify with that.
1: Your favourite of the four?
0: Ah, uh, three. Me as well. The Prince Regent,
1: and that of course we mentioned <laughs> Hugh Laurie through. Telly ap- who,
0: my fine saucy young trollop,
1: through, um, through. There's so many great moments in three, and also beautifully titled three with the names of Ink and Yeah, ink, yeah.
0: that nob and Nobility, Ink and Incapability, and that goes back Dish, to, and Dishonesty. And that
1: is a take on the Bronte, I don't know which Bronte, Sense and Sensibility.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: is a play on those. I think one problem. of them
0: is sense and senility. Actually, yeah, that's correct. the one about. Is that that's the one about the actors? I, I love it I used to quote sort of long passages oh, so, of dialogue. So, so do I. Well, that just that one. That one I just started doing there. That's where he um, he goes broke. So they try and marry him off to the daughter of a rich industrialist, Miss yeah. Amy Hardwood, and 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 uh, Blackadder suggests he should write a letter. He says, oh, "Good idea. Well, take this down then." Tally ho, my fine saucy young trollop. Your luck's in. Trip along here with all your cash and some naughty night attire, and you'll be staring at my bedroom ceiling from now until Christmas, you lucky tart. <laughs> Yours with the deepest respect, etc. Signed, George. P.S. Wolf Wolf. And, and then, Black Hatter says, It's uh, very moving, sir. W- would you mind if uh, we just changed one tiny aspect of it? Uh, which one? Uh, the words,
1: <laughs> and my favourite. What well, <laughs> the moment that just sprang into my mind was when they were desperately in need of a an extra vote to save the excommunication of Prince George. Oh yes, yes. And one of the lords from Parliament arrives and is sitting there and questions his own health, and George says, "Pshaw! Why, look at you, plump of fetlock and rosy of cheek. You're the very embodiment of a healthy English gentleman."
0: At which point, Blackadder says. He's dead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, uh, better wrap it are you, up there. Are you plump of Fetlock. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm less plump than I was a few weeks ago. Fortunately, all right. That's vinyl and video for this week. Let's rant on footyology. The rant off. Okay, no messing around. I'm ready to rant. Count me in. Three, two, one. I'm pissed off with swimming pools, Finey, and given you've recently also inherited one, I suggest you listen closely for a moment and stop googling how many St Kilda players wore long sleeve Guernseys in 1974. Yeah, I know, your own swimming pool. Sounds great, doesn't it? Well, it isn't. It's a bloody unrewarding pain in the arse, not to mention a pain in the bloody wallet. Here's how ours works. It's out the back, right alongside a series of tall, impossible-to-remove trees, all of which shed leaves faster than they grow. Leaves which are way too big to go up the very costly alleged automatic pool cleaner we bought at the outset and which clogs up at the merest hint of anything other than smooth tile. We also inherited a pool which apparently has so many unusual quirks and nuances that it requires not just a highly specialized knowledge of those intricacies but some serious psychiatry. This pool needs such a variety of chemicals, balances and various impossible-to-remember-other substances that to take on the task single-handedly would mean first obtaining a degree in chemistry. That's why from the start we were forced to employ a company offering regular pool cleaning at considerable cost. Unfortunately, that company can't seem to send the same maintenance guy around two weeks in a row. And so oblivious to those quirks and nuances, they inevitably try some unscripted little gambit which throws the delicate ecosystem of the Connolly pool completely out of whack. They also have an uncanny knack of coming around to do the said servicing literally minutes before a massive weather change brings gale force winds and another mass shedding of leaves into the previously pristine waters. If it's not that, it's the bloody council failing to check the stormwater drain up a street which a couple of summers ago kept overflowing and running straight off into our pool. That cost us a couple of grand in repeated costly treatments. So the council came to the party with compensation, right? No, of course not. Instead, they employed Dodgy Brothers legal services to weasel their way out of any responsibility. And if anyone from Stonnington Council happens to be listening to this, no, I haven't forgiven you, and yes, you still suck. So what happened this time, Finny? Well, like anyone with a pool, last Wednesday night it got turned a spectacular Yarrow River shade of brown by the unusual sight of it raining mud. Seriously. Yep, in the space of a few weeks, we've had unprecedented bushfires, hailstorms producing stones the size of tennis balls, and actual mud falling from the sky. Now, of course, finally, I wouldn't dare suggest that in itself as any evidence whatsoever that there's something seriously amiss in what's going on with our climate these days. I'm sure Andrew Bolt has a perfectly rational explanation as to how there's more and more of these weird weather patterns. That's if he can take time out from defending convicted pedophiles, obviously. But I will suggest that in these days of bizarre weather events, owning a swimming pool has become an even bigger pain in the arse than it already was. All that work for, what, a dozen days a year? The rest of the time, in Melbourne anyway, it'll either be too cold, too wet, too hot to venture out the back door lest your feet suffer third-degree burns. The swimming pool is like one of those short-lived KFC double-down things they tried, where they replace the actual bits of bread with two massive chicken fillets. Looks good, sucks you in, but the reality is a greasy, dirty mess which leaves you feeling crook and burns a hole in your pocket at the same time. It's too late for you, but to everyone else out there, I issue this important warning. A house with a swimming pool? Don't! Just don't. (coughs) Brilliant. I sneeze. then. Goods and tight. I just
1: cannot believe how much work a pool is and how that work is never, ever done. And never awarded. It's amazing. You're spot on.
0: All right. I'm counting you in. Three, two, one, rant.
1: The internet and our reliance upon it has much to be... Admired and also certain aspects to be questioned. And I think at the top of that list is social media when it's used for bad, not good. But I do add another growing phenomenon that is part of the internet age, and that is more and more people are falling in line and believing conspiracy theories because they are presented on the internet with a voiceover with some gravitas, a slideshow, and basically to the uneducated eye, presented in such a manner that to refute it would be a near impossibility. Well, I'm telling you, it is possible to refute all of these theories, no matter how slick that slideshow is. I was recently almost forced by a convertee to watch an hour and a half, of which I'll never get back in my life again, confirmation that Paul McCartney in fact died very early on in the life of the Beatles in a car crash, and everything thereafter indicates the need for the remaining three members to out the fake Paul, or fall, as he was thereafter referred to. It is the greatest lot of drivel of all time. I mentioned people actually believing that the Apple label is a contraction of a tribute to Paul. Nevertheless, people do believe it. They also believe that 9-11 was constructed by the U.S. government, that the terrible massacre at Port Arthur was not Martin Bryant's doing, but a desperate John Howard trying to get gun laws through. More ridiculous theories abound. Have you heard of the reptilian theory? Where, in fact, the world's elite are reptiles from another planet. The two prominent members of the royal family are large lizards, as were two of the last three U.S. presidents. The world is run by the illiterati, this group of powerful Europeans who control the World Monetary Fund and in fact control your purse strings. This family wants to own every cent in the world, not happy until they're multi-trillionaires. That through the seat of power of laws in Europe, Turkey, or more accurately, these crazies in Istanbul, have restructured all of our laws and make them the seat of power of the universe, Jews run the media, Catholics, or more accurately the Pope, is has got more gold hidden under the Vatican that is in fact the entire gold reserves in the world, and that a new order city exists under the Detroit airport. All of these are theories that abound on the internet and are believed by people with either too much online time on their hands, or not enough brain cells in their cranium.
0: Very good. (laughs) Very, very good. And I couldn't agree more. And as soon as you started talking conspiracy theories, I thought of Alex Jones, that mad American who is, uh, his show is incredibly popular. But, yeah, just complete wacko stuff. And uh, one conspiracy, the most disgusting conspiracy theory, I find, anyway, is about Sandy Hook. People refusing to believe that that uh, horrible shooting of all those kids didn't actually happen. No no doubt when you're uh, on the internet a lot, uh, you run across a lot of absolute wackos. And and
1: I do find a lot of people that believe these theories and then sort of spout them are trying to sound intelligent. They're they're desperately trying to sound very clever by, oh, here's the evidence, uh, parroting these, as I say, voiceover men with narrators with gravitas and pretty Pretty clunky slideshows.
0: I think a lot of them visit my Twitter feed. You should check them out sometime. All right, uh, just about done here. Uh, A a quick thank you to our lovely sponsors once again, Finey.
1: No theory or conspiracies about Andrew's Hamburgers being the best in Melbourne because the queues will tell you so. Don't worry, you won't have to wait too long. They've got a hard-working staff in a small area producing the best burgers you will have this summer. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. And if you're in the position to do something to your home to add to its value in terms of a rebuild or a renovation, think no further than the brilliant Nick Spartels and Hardwick Bilka.
0: Good work. Uh, support our sponsors. They've been very generous supporters of us. So we would love uh, any business which you may have to go their way in the burger and house markets. All right. Uh, that's it for another Off-season edition of Footyology Podcast Thanks for joining us Uh, Let's go out with a song as per usual No doubt what I was going to play today Finally we spoke about it My album of 1983 was Porcupine By Echo and the Bunnymen a song we both love and many millions across the world love as well. Am I right that I can see another hurdle approaching? You can. We used to think that, actually. Me and my mates thought that was a herd of protein for some reason, <laughs> but uh, then we finally looked up the lyrics. Uh, another hurdle approaching indeed. A classic song. Crank it up, Mr Carl Bianco, panelling efficiently as always on the Footyology Podcast. This is Echo and the Buddyman, The Cutter.